Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. Today, The Trail Has Traveled is being recorded in Missoula. I'm in the home of Neva Hassanen. Neva Hassanen is a professor of environmental studies at the University of Montana, where she has taught since 2000. Neva earned her doctorate in environmental studies from the University of Wisconsin and her master's degree from the University of Oregon. Neva is the author of the book, Changing the Way America Farms, Knowledge and Community in the Sustainable Agriculture Movement. Her recent scholarship develops the concept of food democracy, which is the idea that people can and should meaningfully participate in shaping the food system, rather than remain passive consumers on the sidelines. Her work has explored various issues, such as farmland loss, regional food economies, pesticides, and the U.S. organic program and biotechnology. Neva is attempting to put research into practice at the local level, she and her students help strengthen Montana's food systems through community-based research projects and active partnerships. Neva served on the Missoula City County Consolidated Planning Board for six years. She has also co-founded and served on the boards of several organizations. Neva is currently a business partner in Corner Farm Village, LLC, which is doing a farmland conservation development project on the edge of Missoula. Neva enjoys gardening, sharing food with friends, hunting wild mushrooms, raising urban chickens, and exploring the natural world. Neva, I just want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and energy to join me on The Trail Has Traveled. Thank you for having me, Mandela. Remind me how we originally met. Oh, I'm pretty sure it was on the yoga mat <laughs> at the Yoga Fitness Center here in Missoula and with our dear friend Katie Heath. Beautiful. Well, I know that it has been a long time that I've wanted to sit down and interview you, so I'm really honored to be in your home today. And my first question for you is in regards to your early years and the evolution of you as an activist with the very first Earth Day and some of your time in Kenya where you witnessed hunger and became inspired to get involved with agriculture and farming. Thanks so much, Mandela. Yeah, I sometimes like to think about it as I sort of grew up with the modern environmental movement. And I do remember being a kid about seven or eight years old and the first Earth Day happening at school and around the country, uh, which was in 1970. Later in high school, I became interested in environmental issues that were facing the state of New York where I grew up. And that came about in part because of my love of the natural world. My family did uh, hiking trips and skiing, often in the Adirondack Park in northern New York. And then during high school, I had an opportunity to do an internship with the Department of Environmental Conservation in Albany, New York, which is a state capital. 
I started learning about, in that case, hazardous waste management. And this was a time when a woman named Lois Gibbs was organizing her neighbors in the town of Love Canal, New York, because they had discovered that hazardous chemicals were migrating into their homes, um, onto the school grounds where their kids went to school. And, and so they were seeing lots of incidents of miscarriages and you know rare health problems arising from that. And so this was a time when, you know, the country was really awakening to the fact that we were polluting the environment to such an extent that we're threatening our own human existence. So that was a real wake up call for me. After high school, I, it was 1981, I went to college at a small school outside the Adirondack Park and took an environmental studies class for the first time, which eventually became my life's work uh, teaching in environmental studies. At that time in 1981, Ronald Reagan had just become president. And he set about dismantling the environmental laws that people had just created in the 60s and 70s here in the United States and that were becoming a model for elsewhere in the world. Uh, things like the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, that really made a difference in uh, in pollution and, and controlling pollution for the first time in any meaningful way. And sadly, Ronald Reagan uh, really tried to roll that back. And I remember beginning to organize with other students and such to oppose some of Reagan's policies, including some of the people that he was appointing to uh, lead the key environmental agencies at the federal level. Um, and so, you know, this really fired me up. I guess I've always kind of had a passion for um, trying to right wrongs that I see in society. And um, that was a really pivotal point in my life was beginning to study and learn about environmental problems and not just the problems, but also like the solutions and how we as ordinary people could try to address those problems. And I also became very interested. I happened to go to a university called St. Lawrence University in Northern New York, where they had a, a program to study abroad in Kenya. And this was an amazing thing for a kid, you know, from Long Island to all of a sudden go to Kenya. And I was really fortunate to be able to go. And all of a sudden I go there and, you know, leave LaGuardia Airport. And the next thing I know, I'm in Nairobi, then, you know, living in mud hut, essentially in Western Kenya for a while in the agricultural region. Um, which was just profound uh, for me. And I think that's one of the cool things about your show is that, you know, you're taking people to different places all over the world. And, and that's really how we learn not as much, just as much about like other people's cultures, but also our own. Like we don't really, it all kind of holds up a mirror for us. And that's what happened to me. It really, um, really moved me. While I was in Kenya, I started to develop an interest in particular in food and agriculture. And the reason was, were kind of two big things that happened to me there. One is that 
I started traveling in some parts of Kenya where the agricultural land was still being controlled by non-Kenyans, and this was the best land. And this was, and it was a remnant of the colonial era that then became the neo-colonial era, where people were still extracting wealth from Kenya. And that included the wealth that is produced on the land, right? The, so in this case, it was a lot of tea. And I could see that this great, you know, beautiful land was being used to produce a cash crop for export. And yet at the same time, I saw hunger for the first time. I saw people suffering from hunger, in particular children. I can, you know, remember seeing their faces and thinking, this is just not right. Like, how could we be, you know, doing this to use the best land for crops that, um, and that somebody else is going to be benefiting from, while at the same time people are going hungry and not able to access enough food and healthy food. And so that experience, along with one other, where I did an internship in northern Kenya on the edge of the Chalbi Desert, also that very much impacted me and my direction in terms of getting into agriculture. And really, in that case... There were pastoral people known as the Gabra. They were camel-keeping people. They would travel long distances from Lake Turkana on the west side of the Chalbi Desert across to the east side to this area where I was called the Hurry Hills. And that and they the old men would decide when it was time to move the everybody across the desert. And it would put everybody at risk. But the Hurry Hills was an area where there was um there were some springs, but also just they would get foggy. And the, so there was enough moisture there to produce some good grass. And so they would kind of save that as a reserve for when they really needed to move everybody there. And so I was studying that process, but primarily what kinds of land use changes were occurring in those hills. And because development agencies at the time we're trying to settle the pastoralists, right? It was seen as a backwards way of life and so on. And yet there was incredible knowledge that these people had to be able to survive there mm-hmm. in this you know, incredible, somewhat marginal landscape. And today, unfortunately, this area of Kenya is experiencing some of the worst effects of climate change and animals dying and so on. It's mm-hmm. just tragic. But the experience of sort of of learning about the Gabra, learning about how development initiatives and policies were trying to force them to settle in a landscape that couldn't really support that settlement. And then also seeing at the same time the best agricultural land being used uh, to produce cash crops for export while people went hungry. Those experiences really uh, profoundly impacted me both intellectually, but at at a heart level too. And I started studying agriculture and agricultural policy as a result, because these were not accidents, right? These were things that were deliberate decisions that were made that led to uh, the situation at hand. So those uh, experiences really impacted my development and my interest in learning about how to meet human needs 
in a way that's sustainable, right? That meets our needs today without diminishing the needs of the future. And to do so in a way that is economically viable as well as ecologically sound. So Neva, after you were inspired by what you saw in Kenya in regards to the way the land was being used, how it was affecting people, and when you moved to Missoula in 2000, you did a lot of things. But I uh, wanted to bring it back home and just talk to you about the projects that you're working on, or um, your work since moving to Missoula. Thanks, Mandela. Yeah, I moved here in 2000 after you know spending a number of years studying, also working as a community organizer, including in Montana, and working on pesticide reform issues for a long time as an activist. When I came here in 2000, I was really fortunate to find this environmental studies program that I've worked in and spent most of my career in now. Uh, And it's a unique program because it is committed to training the next generation of environmental leaders. And we mean that broadly defined from educators to lobbyists to, um, you know, people who work in nonprofit organizations or in the government. And so we uh, really have are committed to also teaching students and helping them learn by doing in particular. So very early on when I got here, I decided to um, become more involved in shaping and influencing the direction of the local and regional food system in this place. And that turned out to be a really great opportunity to give students a chance to learn by doing and by getting involved in real world issues here. And we did things like we did a community food assessment of Missoula County and working with community stakeholders uh, who live here and students and people in the broader community to try to understand at that time in, in the early 2000s, what are the assets that we have in this community when it comes to food systems, right? What do we have going for us? But also, what are the challenges? We started asking questions about what is it going to take for agriculture to remain viable here in this place? And historically, this this city is known as the the garden city because it produced um, a lot of food in small vegetable farms, um, orchards, uh, and and ranching. Even sugar beets and and uh, wheat production were common here, or well into the 20th century. And that fed people in this community, but also upriver from us in some of the mining camps um, and communities. And so. Uh, but yet over time, you could see that eroding, right? The, the, the farmlands being paved over for development, the interstate coming through, bringing food from everywhere and nowhere that we know in particular, and then really shifting the local food economy away from one that was pretty self-reliant to one that is dependent on distant sources, 
you know, over the years, we've worked with a lot of community partners here in Montana, nonprofit organizations, community development corporations, local government, to really try to improve our local and regional food system. And, you know, you might say, well, why would you bother to do that? You know, you, you can get food from the grocery store. But we really have uh, an important opportunity around food uh, because food connects us to each other, right? Think about the table, right? People being around it, what bringing people together. Um, think about how food is a part of culture, right? And when you go to a new place, you want to experience the food of that place, right? And, and what it's like. Um, and food also, whether we think about it or not, and oftentimes Americans don't think about it, uh, it, it connects us to the natural world every day, whether, you know, um, through what we eat, through where it comes from, how it was grown, who was involved in producing that food. There's a whole bunch of questions that relate to food and how, and how we live on the planet. So I, um, you know, have worked with a variety of partners to improve our local food system. And by no means this is, is this a solitary endeavor. Um, in fact, it's what's so exciting about it is, is the opportunity to bring together people who care about these issues, but who are also really innovative. Like this is a terrain where people come up with new ideas all the time. And which seems to me, I think it was part of what makes it so attractive to young people. There's a lot of young people in the program I teach in who want to do this work, right? They want to be able to grow food. They want to help people access that food. They don't want it to just be something that, you know, only the wealthy can uh, be able to get. They want to work on literally rebuilding the whole system, right? So what I learned really early on by doing some of the work here is that if we want to rebuild a local and regional food system, there are some key ingredients that we need in that process, right? We need farmland, right? We need the basic resources upon which to produce food, mm-hmm. We need farmers and ranchers, right? We need the people who are going to be involved because agriculture is a very much a human endeavor that takes place in the natural world. We need systems for processing that food, at least to some extent. Mm. We need systems for distributing that food and getting it around, moving it from, uh, you know, from the farm to the store, to the dinner plate, right? Those kinds of things. And I think what's been fascinating to me is the way that we're seeing change and improvement in all of those steps, right? And it's one thing I tell my students that the nice thing about getting older is that you actually see change happen over time. You can look back and say, yeah, well, you know, 20 years ago, we weren't even doing that, right? That's been really exciting to me. There's a couple of things that are really important for folks to understand about why this matters, right? So in my mind, eating local food is not only about like connecting with a particular producer who grew that food, that's really important, um, 
because having a sense of where our food comes from is, is valuable, right? Knowing what it is that keeps us alive, right? We all need food to survive and being connected to it in some way is, you know, not just important in some abstract sense, but in a very literal sense about keeping us excited and curious about the world and about where we live. Knowing where your food comes from is super important and valuable and enriching. But more than that, and um, a community having the capacity to provide at least some of the food that people need is really important, especially in the context of climate change and global disruptions, right? So most of your listeners are probably going to be aware that during COVID and the global pandemic, all of a sudden grocery store shelves were empty and people never had seen that before in this part of the world. And that uh, those kind of global supply chain disruptions, like from pandemics or from war, right? The, what we're seeing in Ukraine, right? Ukraine is an incredibly important contributor to food in Africa um, and parts of the Middle East. And so the blockades that have prevented that grain from leaving Ukraine have really contributed to famine and these kinds of things, in my mind, make it important that communities have capacity to produce and process and distribute some of their own food, at least to some extent, right? It's not going to be everything, probably, you know, it's not likely, and maybe it wouldn't even be desirable. But we've, in the United States anyway, you know, in recent years, in recent decades, it's become where most Americans expect to find whatever they want, whenever they want it on the store shelves, right? So in the middle of January, you should be able to get strawberries, right? Um, and they may not be very good because they've traveled really far and, and they're produced in industrial settings that uh, really deprive them of nutrients and flavor. Mm-hmm. But you know, we've developed this expectation, yet most people in the United States would also be able to tell you, yeah, when that tomato is ripe in August and it's a fresh local tomato, that's like a totally different product than something you might get that's been shipped, you know, thousands of miles to get to the supermarket shelf in your town. So I really believe passionately that we need the capacity to produce local food. We need the capacity to distribute that. And this is not only because of climate change and war and pandemics and so on, but it's also because of the tremendous power that corporations have come to have over our food system. So if you go to the average supermarket here, there's gonna be tens of thousands of products on the shelves. But they're basically controlled by, you know, about 10 different corporations and then a small number of people who control the boardrooms of those corporations and the shareholders who benefit from the profits. And so, in my mind, this idea of food democracy is really important because food is too important to leave up to 
these distant powers that nobody knows, nobody can hold accountable. It's just too important, right? We literally take this food into our bodies every day and we have a right and a responsibility to think about where our food comes from and how it's reaching us and who's benefiting and who's not. Uh, So these are some of the things that really motivate me to work in this area. I guess one of the things I wanted to mention as an example of the corporate influence and how it not only affects us as food consumers, but affects people who live on the land, who work on the land, and affects rural communities. I have a friend named Steve Charter who ranches in Shepherd, Montana, which is north of Billings. And this guy for decades now has been on the cutting edge of innovating with respect to treating the land well and trying to regenerate agriculture on his ranch. And he does this by a variety of practices like intensive grazing where you're moving the cattle quickly through the paddocks so you're not overgrazing. You are also working to manage the water resources well and take care of them. He's also doing an incredible uh, work now on building soil health and regenerating the microbiome on the land. Well, he does mostly still sell his cattle into conventional cattle markets. They're doing some local marketing, but for a variety of reasons has felt like it's mostly necessary to sell to the dominant meat packers, essentially. It's a long story, but part of that loss there and the reason why he's not doing as much local marketing, although that's changing, is, is because of the processing infrastructure being lost. Anyway, Steve and other ranchers are selling their cattle into markets that are highly concentrated. So there's like four meat packers that control 85% of the meat packing industry in this country. Two of those four are not even U.S. owned, they're Brazilian owned. And in the last few years, meat prices that you and I might pay at a grocery store are sky high, okay? And the meat packers are making off uh, with these record profits. But that benefit, that you know, uh, profit isn't going back to the rancher. In fact, they've experienced really low prices starting to change right now. And there is some, you know, volatility in the market. But basically, these meat packers control a lot of market share in order to control prices. And by controlling prices, right, they are essentially controlling who is on the land. Right? Who can maintain a livelihood and be able to survive in this marketplace? And in my mind, that circles back to Steve's work to improve the soil, right? to improve the grasslands, to bring back insects and birds that are, that are important to the ecosystems. Because if you don't have producers like him on the land who understand it, who care about it for generations, then you don't have the capacity to manage that land well and to take care of it for the next generation. 
there's strong connections between how our markets are structured and what actually happens on the land and who gets to be on the land and then who's in our rural communities, right? So these are really critically important things that all consumers and eaters of every stripe should know about. Today, The Trail Has Traveled is being recorded in Missoula. I'm in the home of Neva Hassanen, and Neva is an activist scholar and professor at the University of Montana. Uh, she teaches many courses on food and agriculture, and we're going to talk a little bit now about her farmland conservation development project. Thanks, Mandela. As I mentioned earlier, I really have come to realize that if we're going to build a local and regional food system that's sustainable, that we have to have farmland and farmers on that land. And this kind of interest of mine led me over the last 15 years or so to work actively in our community to try to protect farmland from development. Uh, farm, good quality farmland, good soil, is actually rare on the earth, right? Uh, most of the land isn't very good for producing food. And globally, most of the land that is good for producing food is already in production, right? So it's critical that we take care of the land that we have that is good for growing food. So quality farmland is flat, it's well-drained, uh, it has a structure in the soil that is especially good for moisture retention, right? Keeping enough moisture in the soil for plants to provide what they need uh, without being waterlogged, right? So it's kind of got to be right sort of in the middle of the soil structure. And this is often referred to as prime agricultural soil. So prime soil, prime ag land is rare. It also tends to occur often near cities, right? Because that's where people have settled, right? They settled near the rivers, they settled in the flatlands, right? And those areas, as our populations have grown, have turned often to the nearby farmland to develop new housing, put up new big box stores, and so on. And Missoula is no exception. But it's also not unique, right? There's, it's happening everywhere. We're losing our quality farmland to poorly planned development. So I have worked both doing research as well as trying to engage in the local planning process in our community to figure out ways to try to protect this farmland from development. We're going to grow. I mean, our town is exploding with growth, especially over the last few years with COVID. Our housing is a horrible crisis right now. It's extremely difficult to find, you know, safe, affordable, attainable housing in our community. So we're going to be putting more land into development. But so then the question is like, where is it appropriate to grow? Where is that housing best located? And traditionally, at least here in the, in the inner mountain west in the United States and, and elsewhere, 
we've mostly just sprawled out into the countryside. That's like the classic suburb, right? That is not near a corner store or anything right anymore, right? You got to get in your car and drive somewhere if you want to get a gallon of milk, right? These communities are often, you know, not only car dependent, but they also are often pretty inefficient in how they use the land, right? So one house on half an acre is not a very efficient use of land. And then if what you're doing is you're building on the best quality land because it happens to be flat and well-drained and easy to develop near the city, then you're also losing some critical resources in the process. So we've tried hard to make people aware of this phenomena here in Missoula County. You might say, well, why bother saving farmland? Well, like I said earlier, it's a finite resource, right? It doesn't occur just anywhere. And pretty much once it's paved over or converted to another use, it's kind of gone, right? And oftentimes with development, they'll even shave off the soil when they put on housing development, they'll take that soil off and they'll sell it, you know, at the local nursery. Mm-hmm. And so it's being used perhaps somewhat, but you're totally destroying the soil structure mm-hmm. when you do that. It's really not ideal. <laughs> so we've seen nationally that, you know, every five years or so, we're losing another few percent of our acres of total acres of farmland in the country. And that's land that you really, it's going to be really hard to get back. Yes, you can do some remediation and some cool things are happening in some places like inner cities where they're trying to clean up land and start growing gardens and stuff. But you'd be much better off protecting that resource in the first place. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, of course, that farmland is essential in terms of addressing some pretty important, what we call ecosystem services, we get some real benefits by leaving farms intact. So things like flood control. Farmlands can absorb floodwaters much more easily than the big parking lots, and for instance, that where water's gonna just run right off and so on. So. They provide ecosystem services. They often, those will include also like habitat on the edges of farms, right? These are important places for wildlife to survive amidst humanity. They're also important for protecting water quality. If the, if the practices are done well, it can really help to preserve and protect quality water. So we get a lot of benefit by leaving farmlands intact. And of course we get food, right? And so producing food for local markets makes our communities more secure and also more vibrant, right? For the future. So if you're here in the summertime and you go down to one of our farmers markets, there's literally hundreds of vendors that are out there in the sunshine sharing what they've grown, what they've produced with the community. And it's like an incredible cultural space mm-hmm. where people get to interact with one another. They get to know their farmers. They know who provides that great peach that you're going to start getting in late July or the terrific cantaloupe later in the summer, right? Those And like the, the food itself connects us to 
the place where we live mm-hmm. and when the seasons when it's available and it's at its best right and it connects us to each other right as a community and that builds a, a local economy that is much healthier i think for the long run right because you're supporting local businesses you're supporting the people who are in your community and that just ripples out you know, right for every dollar you spend in the community those people are then spending a dollar or more in their community in the same community and so on and so it it ripples out uh to benefit all of us it's not to say that i don't care about other communities i do i think that's important and we ought to make our buying choices wisely when we support products that are coming to us from far away. I still drink coffee, you know, mm-hmm. and that, and then we can't grow coffee here. Yeah. And I'm going to make choices about that coffee based on how the people who grew it are treated in that process. So to me, that's really important. So going back to farmland, right? So the key idea here is I really believe that even as we grow as a community, in our community and any other community across this country and probably the world, that protecting some of that farmland that is nearby is critical for our security in the long term. It also makes it a nicer place to live, right? For years, I kind of railed against, uh, you know, the local government trying to get them to regulate this in some way and to protect farmland through regulation. And to be honest, I mean, we had a few successes, but we've had a lot of failures in that process. What little achievement we did have was undone by the state government. So the next highest level of government basically took away our right as a community to protect land during the development process based on the soil quality. So people often talk about local control. Well, the reason why a lot of communities don't have local control over things like the development process, and that's a tragedy. So we've seen farmland get eaten up over and over. We've seen the failure of some levels of government to really care about this issue and to want to protect farmland for the future. And we've been unable to do much of that through regulation. And for better or worse, I mean, you know, people have different ideas on whether regulation is the right approach. But regardless, we tried that. We lost a lot, a lot of ground, unfortunately. So a few years ago, I had an opportunity to partner with some friends who farm on the edge of Missoula. And their business is about 30 years old. They have been producing food, uh, mostly mixed vegetables, for our community for all that time. Selling locally, selling through direct markets, selling directly to restaurants, farmers markets, but also through a fabulous growers cooperative that we have here that aggregates uh, produce from about 40 different producers to market it um, around the state. The farm, Clark Fork Organics, 
had been leasing this land on the edge of Missoula for about 15 years or so, some particular property. And we had an opportunity to buy it. And it came on the market. And within 24 hours, the price was bid up $200,000 just in 24 hours because of the development potential of this beautiful farmland, prime agricultural soil. It's been taken care of organically for all these years. And I mean, frankly, we just lucked out that we were able to put this together. And we bought the land and we are now trying to do what's called a farmland conservation development project. So the land is about nine acres total. The it has some riparian area on it. It's got some of the land is in the floodplain, so it can't be built on safely in that sense. And then some of the land has been farmed organically for all these years. But part of it is also kind of rocky and compacted and not really very good for farming or much else, right? But what it is good for is it houses. So we are protecting about seven of the nine acres permanently, forever. They'll be protected and held for the community's benefit to produce local food for the community in a sustainable, in a sustainable way. Then on the other two acres, we're going to put housing and a store and cafe that will use produce from the farm. And so we'll be providing a new farm-related agricultural business. We'll be providing housing, which is critically needed. And we'll be protecting farmland and a riparian area for the community. That's the vision. It's been super challenging. I don't want to act like it's been easy. We've countered a bunch of obstacles along the way, but I think we're going to be able to pull it off in the end. So you might want to check back with me in a few years and find out if we were able to do it. But this has been a really exciting thing for me because I, I've learned a bunch of new things and, and I've learned to see the process from the perspective of the developer, albeit, you know, I'm still in there with my core values at play, but I see the kinds of things that developers find challenging in the process. And so it's made me attune uh, to that. And I feel like by, uh, you know, my work now in this sphere, doing a conservation development, using a strategy to protect the farmland permanently, but also, you know, my previous work as an activist trying to get this local government to protect the land. My work as a researcher trying to document what land has been lost, what its potential is, uh, what the potentials of those local markets are for our community. Um, I've really started to kind of see the whole issue from a, a range of perspectives now that's been really beneficial and enlightening for me personally and kind of fun. <laughs> that is the voice of Neva Hassanen. And Neva, I would love to end the show with some guidance that you could provide in regards to being mindful with how they consume. I find that a lot of the people I run into are overwhelmed by all the issues going on on our planet. But I also do believe that apathy is mankind's ticket to extinction. And there's a lot of things we can do, especially when we go out to purchase. 
Yeah, that's a terrific question. And of course, I think how we make our purchasing decisions is really important. And, you know, so I would love it if everybody could support local and organic food. Sometimes that's more expensive. Sometimes it's not. So like right now, eggs, for instance, are very expensive, conventional eggs. But you might be able to find local eggs that are less expensive right now than they are in the base general supermarkets. Sure, like people say you should, you know, vote with your fork, right? And I believe that. I think that's useful. But I think we can do so much more than that, right? We are more than consumers, right? We need to be good citizens of the planet, not, um, and I mean citizens in the sense of people who live here and reside here, not so much as the legal definition of citizens. We can be good food citizens, right? And the way we do that is by not only making good choices about what we buy, but really about getting involved and understanding the issues that will have consequences for the future, right? When we develop on farmland, for instance, that's going to have a long-term consequence for the next generation and the generation after that. And so... More than our food choices, we really need to actually get engaged. And the thing that, like I mentioned earlier, that's so exciting about the food arena is there's so much innovation, right? There's all sorts of things happening now that are so cutting edge. It keeps going. It keeps going. Like we see, you know, community gardens have been around for a long time, but they're flourishing around the country, around the world. A lot of food is produced in urban areas around the world. Farmers markets are flourishing. We see more and more young people getting interested in food through things like farm to school programs that are bringing local food into the school cafeterias, that are bringing the farmers into the classroom to teach kids about where their food comes from. We have a farm camp here where young kids can go and spend a week or two in the summer learning about food and how it's grown. And so a big part of what we can do is actually improve our knowledge of the food system, whether you're 10 or 50, right? You know, it doesn't matter. We can always learn more about food. And I would say, too, that there's a real pleasure in this. Like, I think sometimes you mentioned that apathy is a real problem and a path to extinction. But the fun thing about this actually is that food, everybody can relate to it, right? We all need it. It's not some abstract thing. And through food, we can do much more than send a message that is gloom and doom. I like to say, you know, we're not talking about a worldwide celery diet, right? It doesn't mean that everybody has to sacrifice. In fact, what we're talking about is making it possible for everybody, no matter what income or race or ethnicity you are, to be able to have a healthy, nutritious culturally, you know, relevant meal every single day. And that is got to be the goal. People deserve that, I think. Neva, thank you so much for joining me on The Trail Less Traveled. Thank you so much, Mandela. This has really been a pleasure. Appreciate it. Namaste, Missoula. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. 
the community's source for adventure inspiration and information. The show premieres every Sunday night at 6 Mountain Time, and you can stream it live online at trail1033.com. If you missed the premiere, the show is also a podcast available everywhere with the full show archive listed at traillesstravel.net. I'm going to keep my sign-off short and sweet this evening, but I would like to give a shout-out to Float Missoula. If you haven't already, please do check out the resources at floatmsla.com. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please remember, conservation isn't a spectator sport. Please speak up on behalf of the resources and the wildlife that you love. Namaste, friends and listeners. Mandela here. In order to keep the podcast ad-free, I'm asking folks to donate a few dollars each month. You can support my podcast and outreach programs in schools by visiting traillesstravel.net and following the link to my Patreon account.